So we all have our own like roadblock stories, right? And probably have multiple of them. Here's what I mean. Like you're trying to get to places and then streets are blocked off and it becomes like this huge obstacle to get to where you're wanting to go, right? So I had one of these, um, probably the most frustrating experience I've ever had within the last year, all right? So um, here's sort of a little bit of a context My family came from Louisville, Kentucky. I was serving at a church called Sojourn Church in Louisville, Kentucky. Our goodbye there was pretty pathetic, all right? So it's in the middle of COVID. We, my, our goodbye is standing in an empty room, preaching to a camera, telling all the people that we love goodbye, all right? So just a horrible experience. And so this past year, I got to go and preach there, and the people, they're meeting in person again, and so everybody was going to be in the room once again. And so I was just filled with excitement, right? Didn't leave this church as if, as if I was running from something. We were either running to the, God, to the call that God had placed on our life here in St. Louis. Lewis. And so, man, I'm just filled with excitement, right? I'm staying at my parents' house, which is about 40 minutes south. I'm going to drive up I-65 on that Sunday to go preach to this church that we love so dearly. And here's what happened, all right? So I wake up early, get into my car, driving up I-65, the interstate that takes you to Louisville, Kentucky, and a massive storm hits, I'm talking about the type of rain that comes down. You put on the windshield wipers as high as you can. Still not great visibility. And so you're driving on the highway about 40 miles an hour. That's what's going on about right as I hop onto the highway. I'm about 20 minutes in on my way up I-65 to get to Louisville, Kentucky. And then there's standstill traffic. So I'm in my car trying to get to a preaching engagement. I'm halfway there. Cars are not moving. And so I pull out my phone, I'm texting frantically with the church leaders, let them know kind of what's going on. The shoulder of the highway is completely clear, but I have a cop that's right behind me, you know what I'm saying? And so it's like, I can see the the next exit, it's about a quarter of a mile up the highway. And so I see my path to where I can get to an alternate route to try to get to the place, but I have a cop behind me. I don't know what the rules are. I don't, I don't know what the laws are. I don't know if I get off, if he's going to pull me aside and I'm going to get a ticket. So I sit there, 10 minutes pass by, the line starts to inch a little bit forward. People get the gist. And so they're starting to take this exit. I finally get up to the exit. The cop stays on the highway, thinks, Thanks be to God. So I get off the highway. I take the alternate route. I am not going the speed limit. I'll just say that. Um, I'm cruising through these side roads, get back onto the highway. And I'm, here's the thing that I'm doing, right? So I'm like looking at the street and then I gaze at the clock and then I look at the street and then I gaze at the clock and then I, this whole thing happens until I finally get there. I'm just a inner ball of anxiety, right? So there. The storm is going on. I'm running late. I get to the service with one song left before the sermon starts. That's like what I'm stepping into here. And so what was supposed to be this joyful experience, stepping back into the life of a church that I love so dearly, people that we didn't get to give the big hugs and kisses goodbye before we left. I'm filled with joy to see them and to be able to embrace them and hug them. I'm just a wreck inside I step in, I somehow get off a sermon, (laughs) able to compose myself before the second service. But what was supposed to be this joy-filled experience became just wrecked with anxiety. Tonight, we're looking at the last two petitions of the Lord's Prayer. It's the final sermon in our series of what we're calling Let Us Pray. 
In these final petitions, petitions five and six, they address roadblocks to fellowship. They address roadblocks to fellowship. So the first three petitions that we looked at were all about inviting and seeking that God would enter into our world, that his name would be holy, that he would make himself known to everybody and anybody that hears the name of Jesus, that as this happens, we invite the kingdom of God in. We're literally wanting the presence of God here in our life as well as in the world. We pray that his will be done, not our will be done, so his purposes his plans are what's being enacted here in this world. So we're inviting God to come into our world. We're wanting fellowship with God. And then the fourth, the fifth, the fourth petition is give us our daily bread. And then we enter into the fifth and sixth petition, which are all about wanting to remove any obstacles, any roadblocks that may hinder our fellowship with this God that we've asked and we've pleaded that he would be here in this world. So here's what like, I'm wanting to do tonight. There's three particular actions that you see in these final two petitions. It's forgive us, it's lead us, and then it's deliver us. So here's simply what I want to do tonight. I want to wrestle with these three actions in the final two petitions. God, forgive us. God, lead us. God, deliver us. I want to break them down for us. I want us to try to apply them to our life, and then we'll close out the sermon as well as the series. All right? So verse 12 is where we find our first action statement here, forgive us. Here's what it says as a source of remembrance for us. It says this, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. So like this is a petition about the roadblock that our sin poses to fellowship both, both with God and with others. So Jesus starts this petition, forgive us our debts, because we don't want anything obstructing our fellowship with this God that we've pleaded that he would enter both our life as well as our world. Here's what we can find from this, all right? Sin disrupts fellowship, all right? Here's, let me explain this for a moment. All right, so Jesus is assuming relationship with God here already. If you think back to the address, what's the address? Our Father in heaven. So Jesus is assuming that we've already tasted grace and forgiveness in our relationship with God. And what the Bible says is that when we enter into relationship, there's two things that are simultaneously true. All right. The first one is that we've been justified through faith through Jesus Christ. All right. So here's what this means, that you've been adopted into the family of God. There, God has invited you in because of your belief in Jesus. He's forgiven you of your sin. You're invited into the family. You're adopted into the family. And here's the hope of this justification, that there's nothing that can pluck you out of the hand of God. There's, it's not your sin that can take you out. There's no other force or power that can take you out. Satan himself can't pluck you out of the hand of God. You're completely justified. You're reconciled to God as your father in heaven. Yet, the Bible also says that our sanctification, our growing into the likeness of Jesus, is an ongoing process. So here's what this means. This reconciled relationship that you have with God is an ongoing process of what it looks like to live within this reconciled relationship. This also means that sin disrupts fellowship. 
So take this for example, right? So my, my boys, I have four boys, nine and under, Seth, Sutton, Sawyer, and Shepard. There's nothing, absolutely nothing that can change the fact that I'm their dad. I, I tell them this all the time. So whether my boys disobey me, whether they're disrespectful, whether they're dishonest, there's absolutely nothing that can change the fact that I'm their dad. My love runs so deep for my boys that there's absolutely nothing that they could do that would allow them to remove the title of being my children. Yet, at the same time, when they do disobey, when they are disrespectful, or when they are dishonest, it disrupts our fellowship. There's things that we have to work through in order for us to relate with one another the way that we seek and we desire to do within the life of our family. Well, that's the same thing that's true with us in our relationship with our Father in heaven. Whenever you come to Jesus in faith for the things that he's done for you and his life and work, his death and resurrection, there's absolutely nothing that can pluck you out of the hand of God. You're completely justified. You're adopted into the family. Nothing can change your status as the son and daughter of God. But yet at the same time, you living within this relationship is still affected by our struggle with sin that happens here in this daily life. So look, whenever Jesus instructs us to pray, forgive us our debts, Jesus is simultaneously approving that we are the children of God, but yet at the same time, we find forgiveness and we can live within this sanctifying relationship with our Father who is in heaven here and now. Yet, it doesn't stop there, this petition. So not only does Jesus have in light our fellowship with God, he also has our fellowship with one another. So here's what Jesus says. He has this comparison. He says, forgive us our debts. And look, here's the comparison. As we also have forgiven our debtors. Here's what's happening, all right? Jesus is saying, as God has done for you, you are also extending to other people. That's what Jesus is instructing us as we pray that we ask that our sins be forgiven in relationship with God himself. So Jesus is not saying here, it's not a bribe where he's saying, because I've forgiven other people, then God, you must forgive me. That's not what's happening here. Remember, there's a prior relationship that has happened here. You've tasted, you experienced the grace and forgiveness of Jesus. And so since you've tasted and experienced this, it's now an extension. You extending this grace and forgiveness that you've experienced in your relationship with your heavenly father to other people. So it's not God forgive me because I've forgiven others, but rather God forgive me as I've also extended the very grace that I've already tasted from you. This grace and forgiveness that you've already lavished upon me, yet I'm still the sinful one that's having to come to you asking over and over again forgiveness for the things that I've caused in our relationship with you. God, the same way that you forgive me, I seek to forgive other people. That you're removing whatever obstacles may lay before you in relationship with your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ, just as God has removed your obstacles and forgiven you your sin, you do the same thing for others that are in the same fellowship of the family of God. 
So look, here, step back with me for a second so we can try to get a 3,000-foot view of what Jesus is really instructing us in this fifth petition. Here's what he's doing. He's giving us a glimpse to life in the kingdom of God. That's what he's giving us in this fifth petition. He's imploring that we pray this fifth petition because he wants us to experience the kingdom of God in this life here and now. So here's how powerful the death and resurrection of Jesus is. It's reconciliation. Reconciliation with God himself as well as your brothers and sisters in Christ. Not just something that's off distant in the future, but something that we get to enact here and now. Here's what this means. We live our future now. The thing that we look forward to with anticipation when Jesus comes back, he comes back for his people, he brings heaven to earth, the new heavens and then a new earth where there's no more obstacles, there's no more hindrances, that we are fully enacted, that we get to finally be with Jesus physically for forever. Jesus is saying you get to experience that here and now. Because how powerful his death and resurrection is that it, re- it reconciles us to both God and one another here and now. How do we live within the kingdom of God? We seek forgiveness where obstacles, where our sin has roadblocked us in our fellowship with the Father. We bring it, we confess it, we repent of it, but we also do it with one another. And so look, if you have a view of just how deeply sinful you are, and you go and you're constantly asking the Father for, you're confessing your sin, you're asking for forgiveness, you're doing the same thing with one another, you're enacting the kingdom of God. You're living under the rule of him here and now. It's not just something that you look forward to, but it's something we taste in the present. So look, here's a sign of Christian maturity. A sign of Christian maturity is that you are quick in practicing the fifth petition over and over and over and over in your life. That you're seeking confession and repentance as a way of life, not just these one-offs whenever you feel really weighed and guilty over certain things that happen in your life. You want to live within the kingdom of God here and now? You make your life a constant regurgitation of this fifth petition. It's your way of life. So one of, there's a pastor, um, Scotty Smith, um, that has meant a lot to me. I've studied his works. I've also got to be around him on a few occasions. And he had this other pastor was sort of a mentor for him, all right? And so this pastor, his name is Jack Miller. And this pastor, I was at a conference, heard him share this story, and it's just stuck with me. He said that Jack Miller, um, he would oftentimes see him go into a room where the door would be like cracked open and there would be serious conversation that was happening. Jack would walk out with a huge smile on his face and then you could just feel the sweetness and relationship between the two people that were exiting the room. And it happened enough that Scotty was just so curious that Jack like kind of exited and then he went and quickly grabbed the other person. He was like, what is Jack doing? This continues to happen in his life. I see him do it over and over and over again. Like what, what in the world is happening in these rooms? Like what's happening? And so this person was like, oh, Jack was just, he pulled me aside because he was asking for my 
forgiveness for something that happened to us. Like, I, I didn't even, it's so minuscule. It was something that didn't really seem something, I, I didn't even give it a second thought, but I was so moved by Jack's humility and his conviction. And he, he came, I was quick to forgive him because I, I, this man's love for me was just, it was all over the, the page for me. I, I, you could just feel it in the room. And so here's what Scotty had to say about Jack. He said, repenting became fun for Jack Miller because it meant a fuller experience of God's kingdom here and now. So look, you want to know what it's like to live with God and one another in peace? Then you pray, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Growth in Christian maturity is praying the fifth petition with regularity. Not only do we pray for forgiveness of committed sin, but we pray against the threat of sin as well, which is what we see in the sixth petition. So here's the first action statement. It's to lead us. Verse 13 says, and do not bring us into temptation. So this final petition is a prayer against future roadblocks in our fellowship with God and one another. So we have to read this petition in light of what the rest of the Bible has to say about this concept of temptation, all right? So if you look throughout the Bible, here's what you'll see that the Bible says about God in relationship to temptation. It says that God is not the one that actually tempts us. James 1.13, James is the brother of Jesus, so he's a credible source, right? James 1.13 says this, no one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God since God is not tempted by evil and he himself does not tempt anyone. So look, this verse, verse 13, is not saying that God tempts you. Also, it's not a prayer that there wouldn't be trials in your life. Here's why, all right? If you look throughout the history of Christianity as well as the scope of the scriptures, you see that trials are actually the purifying um, thing that happens in our life, the refining fire that gets rid of the impurities of our soul so that we actually become more like Jesus himself. And so look, as Christians, the people of God that want to know our Jesus and want to be in his likeness and image as well, we don't pray that we wouldn't enter into trials because we want to be like Jesus. So if that's the case, if God doesn't tempt us, and it's not also a question or it's not a prayer that we would not be brought into trials, this refining fire of getting away the impurities of our soul, then what is happening here? Well, Jesus is instructing us to pray that temptation would look not overwhelm us or not overcome us. That's what Jesus is instructing us to pray in this sixth petition. Here's why. Sin is both dangerous and enticing. We see a couple of things in the New Testament. So the apostle Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus, he wrote a couple of letters. And the first one, he describes Satan as a roaring lion that's seeking to devour its prey. So whenever a lion is going around and it's seeking to devour its prey, what does it do? It studies its prey and it learns its weaknesses. 
Peter is saying that's exactly what Satan does with us. No matter how high and mighty or proud you may be, you have weaknesses. You do. And here's the thing that we know about Satan is he's watching you, he's studying you, and he knows where you're weak. So sin is dangerous. But look, also in the book of James, we see that sin is also enticing because it provokes our desires. Meaning, it appeals to the appetites of our heart. So, here's what we need to understand, all right? When it comes to sin, on every front, whether it be externally or internally, sin attacks us where we're vulnerable. That's what we learn from the Bible. Because it knows, Satan knows our weaknesses, so it's, sin is dangerous, but also sin, it's infected us And so it appeals to the appetites of our own hearts and it's dangerous because we're vulnerable to it. That's why Jesus instructs us to pray, lead us not into temptation. Here's ultimately what Jesus is instructing us to pray. That we go to the Father and that we ask that through the strength of his spirit that we would not consider it or that we would entertain the thought of this uh, said temptation. Another way of like way that you can pray is God, don't let me enter into temptation. God, I know my own sinful tendencies. I know my weaknesses. I know the one that's even more powerful than me, Satan himself knows my weaknesses. So when it comes to my enticement as well as the danger of sin and my weaknesses, God, don't allow this temptation to overwhelm me. Don't allow it to overcome me to the point that I succumb to sin. But God, would you strengthen me? Would you strengthen me through the trial? As the evil one comes with the temptation towards me, would you strengthen me? Would you help me keep watch? Would you help me watch it? Would you help strengthen me so that I'm not succumbed to this said sin? Now, here's what we need to know in order for us to pray this petition best. You need to know yourself. You need to know yourself. Here's a couple of questions for you. What are my vulnerabilities? Where am I weak? What are the things that I know are enticing to me that are wrong for me? You need to know your vulnerabilities. If you want to fight sin, if you want to pray as Jesus is instructing us to pray here, you need to know yourself. There's a pastor back in the 1500s that he gave two categories of temptation that I thought was really helpful. Hopefully it helps you think and process as you're wrestling through how you best pray this petition in your own life. So he said, he lists the two different types of temptation, the right and the left. So the right are riches, power, and honors of this world. In essence, it's prosperity. And here's the temptation of prosperity that you become so rich, you become so powerful, that you become so well-liked and perceived in the eyes of men that you think you don't need God. And so when you come to this fifth petition, 
you wrestle with these questions, what are my vulnerabilities, what are my weaknesses, what entices my heart, and you look at the state of prosperity, and you pray, God, don't let me get to this point, because you are better than anything this world has to offer me. Yet at the same time, you pray the left, which is poverty and disgrace and contempt and afflictions. In essence, it's adversity. And here's the temptation of adversity. God has given up on me. God has turned his back on me. I've sinned too many times. I've wronged too many people. There's no way that a God like that could love a person like me. And so it leads you to a place of despair where you feel like there's no hope, there's no chance, there's no future with you and God. But the hope of the gospel is that's not true. The hope of the gospel is it doesn't matter how far you are. It doesn't matter how lost you may seem. It doesn't matter what you've done in this life. If, Paul, if God can save a person like Paul, who literally was killing Christians and seeking to wipe Christianity off the face of the earth, there's hope for you too. And so we pray this final petition that God would protect us against the threat that sin poses to our fellowship. God, don't let me give in to the hopes and desires and the dreams of this world, but also don't allow me to go to the state of despair. You know yourself. You know your vulnerabilities. You know your weaknesses. You know your appetites. Which leads us to the final point, which is deliver us. It's the final action statement. Deliver us from the evil one. So look, don't bring us into temptation is the prayer that God would keep us from entering into temptation and deliver us from the evil one is the prayer that God would provide us the way out. So part, it's the part two of the same petition. We're still in the sixth petition. It's the part two of the same petition. Part one is the negative. God, don't let me enter into temptation. Strengthen me. I need you, God. Don't let this overwhelm me. Don't let it overcome me. And then part two is the positive. God, provide me the way out. Paul summarizes all of this in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He says this, no temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way out so that you may be able to bear it. That's the, in essence, the commentary of the latter part of the sixth petition. So look, we need to wrestle with this. We need to wrestle with, okay, if, if we enter into trials, the promise is that God will strengthen us through the trial and he'll also deliver us, he'll provide a way out. How does he deliver us? What does it look like? It's this, you look to Jesus. Consider his life. There's at least two encounters that we see recorded in the gospel, both his temptation in the wilderness as well as his prayerfulness in the garden. And we see a few things that happen here. We see some things that Jesus is both our pattern and our power in how we fight sin. We see that Jesus knows the Bible. 
He knows the word of God. He also is reliant on the power of the spirit. He doesn't fight temptation out of his own strength. We actually see the Holy Spirit come upon Jesus before he's ushered out into the wilderness. It says the Holy Spirit is the one that actually took him out there. And so all that you can like bring out of this is that Jesus was reliant on the Holy Spirit as he was in the wilderness being tempted by Satan. And then the last thing in the garden is that he prays. So look, Satan appears in Christ's weakness and Jesus depends on the power of the Spirit. Satan appeals to Christ's appetite and Jesus combats temptation with the word of God. Jesus is overwhelmed by the coming cross and what is his response? He prays. So what do we do when we pray, deliver us from the evil one? We fight with the Bible. We go to the spirit for his strength and we don't fight out of our own strength. We're people that pray because we know that God is with us. So look, if you need some like language that helps you, if you need some like paradigm for what it looks like for us to practice this, you need almost words that are put into your mouth for you to live in, go to Galatians 5. Go to Galatians 5. Here's what verse one says. For freedom, Christ set us free. Here's what that means. Sin is no longer your master. Grace is. Grace is your master. Sin is no longer what entangles you. It's no longer your master that is the predominant voice in your life. And here's what the second part of this is from Paul. It says, then stand firm. Stand firm. And don't submit again to a yoke of slavery, speaking of your sinfulness. So here's what he's saying. Sin no longer masters you. Christ has set you free. You can stand firm. The question is how? Right? We'll go to verse 16. It says this, I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desire of your flesh. So look, there's a couple of lists that Paul lists here. It gives you framework for how you use the Bible to fight against the old patterns of your life and then looking towards the vision that God has given you for a new life in the kingdom of God in relationship with him. So here's some of the, the things that he says. So you look at sexual immorality. You say, that's the old slavery. That's the old Josh. That's the old Lucas. That's the old Cherish. Like that was the old pattern of life. And I know that God has called me to something different, which are the fruits of the spirit, joy, peace, faithfulness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. These are the things. So you look at the old ways of life and you look at the list and you say, jealousy is no longer my way of life. I, I see my enticement towards the things of this world. I see how people get what I want in this world. I see the appetite of my flesh, but that's not what God has called me to. Bouts of anger are the old Josh. That's not the way that I continue to function anymore. It's now faithfulness and gentleness and kindness. And so you're using God's word to fight against the enticements of your own soul. You look at, here's my weaknesses. This is a list. You could probably add to it because there are other things that are at war in your own soul. 
And then you use the other list, the fruit of the spirit, and say, this is what I fight with. When I see temptation coming my way, here's how I fight because here's the hope. Here's the things that I walk into. Here's the new pattern of life that God has invited me into. I fight that. I don't rely on my own strength. It says walk in the Holy Spirit. Look, this means you come to the end of yourself and you see, I don't have the own strength. And so when you feel the temptation, when you feel the desire, when you feel the weakness, you run in prayer to the Holy Spirit. Give me the strength. Deliver me out of this trial. Don't let me be succumbed to this sin. Deliver me. Give me the way out. Help me fight this. Give me the strength. Let me persevere. Help me endure. Let this impurities of my soul be melted away with the trial that's going on before me. Deliver me. Galatians 5 gives you the framework for what it looks like. You depend on the spirit and then you combat with scripture and prayer. Lead me and deliver me. But what about when we fail? Sanctification is an ongoing process. You're gonna fail. I don't mean to be like Debbie Downer, but it's the truth, okay? What do you do then? Look, the answer is the same. You look to Jesus. Because not only is he your pattern, and not only is he your power, he's also your pardon. So when you fall short, you come back to the fifth petition. Forgive me my debts. Forgive me my debts. Look, here's the hope of the gospel. It's in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all righteousness. This isn't a one-time occurrence. This is a promise for when you bring your sin to God, he forgives you in the name of Jesus. So what do we do when we fail? It's the same answer. I look to Christ. He's my pardon. He's my hope. Here's the beauty of this. The gospel is not our diving board. It's the pool that we live in. It's the water that we swim in. The gospel is not the springboard where it's just the beginning of the Christian life and then you're looking for all the other additions that you need in order to live in faithfulness to God himself, living in this reconciled relationship with God. That's not the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel, it's the deep end. You dive into the pool whenever you come to a relationship with Jesus, you're reconciled to God and it's the waters that you swim in the grace and forgiveness that you received when you first entered into the family of God are now the lifestyle by which you live. Whether it's the pattern and the power by which you live as you fight the enemy, as you fight the enticements and the appetite of your own soul for sin, it's also the pardon by which you continue to come back over and over and over again. You never get over the gospel. You never move beyond Jesus. He's your everything. So look, maybe your question is, I don't know this Jesus yet. 
I don't have this relationship. I don't know God as Father. The answer is look to Jesus. Look, here's the hope. You don't have to do anything to clean your life up before you come to him. All that he asks you to do is to put your worst foot forward. And you come to Jesus and he embraces you and he accepts you by literally owning your sinfulness and leaning and relying on all that he did in his life and work for you. And it means reconciliation for you, both with God and others. Look, are you a new Christian? Are you frustrated? You're like, man, I continue to wrestle with the same things all the time. It just doesn't feel like there's any growth that's happening. What's the answer? You look to Jesus. You look to Jesus. You keep coming back to Jesus. And here's the hope. Your sanctification is this slow, incremental growth that will happen, and God's going to make you more like Jesus. It feels a lot like the process of learning how to put on your clothes. When you're a three-year-old, it's really hard. When you're 18, you can do it in an instant, and 10 minutes later, you can be in your college classroom, right? It's the same way with the Christian life. You continue to look to Jesus. You keep coming back. He's your pattern. He's your power. He's also your pardon. Maybe you're a mature Christian. You've been walking with Jesus for a really long time. You're feeling really weary. What do I do? You look to Jesus. There's this old image that we've gotten away with in the church where um, you look, you go to old church properties and there's both the church itself, the building, as well as the graveyard. You know why they did that? It was both a warning as well as a hope. They looked at the grave and they knew what the end of their life and their sin was going to be. It was a warning, don't turn away from Jesus. But then they also looked at the grave and it was their hope. Because you know what the hope of the believer is? Is that there's a coming resurrection. And if we don't turn our back on Jesus, if we don't neglect Jesus, if we don't go to anything else besides Jesus, your hope is that you will have a new body physically present with Jesus himself one day. So hold believer, don't grow weary. Your labor is not in vain. A future hope rests for you. You get to experience and taste of it now, but it's coming in full. And you look to Jesus to get there. So look, these final petitions are all about the removal of roadblocks to fellowship. God, forgive us. God, lead us. God, deliver us. Now, think about this with me, all right? Let's close out the series. Let's close out the sermon, all right? So we've been walking for seven weeks now, I believe, through this series. And can I just be really honest with you? There's been roadblocks in the series, all right? So it's felt a little choppy. Maybe you're, this is your first time here and you're like, oh, this has been great. Praise God. If you've been here for a while, you're like, yeah, it's been a little up and down, all right? There's been some things that were out of our control. We had power outages that were here that we had to fluctuate how we met. Um, there's just other things that have happened. Unfortunate timing, schedules where people are in and out 
pretty regularly, guest preachers that have come in, like my family's even traveled. This is not like a guilt trip. This is just the stating of what the reality has been. It's just felt a little choppy. Now, here's what I want us to see. I don't think it's a coincidence. I don't think it's a coincidence that when we're wrestling with what it looks like for us to be a church that prays, that our plans are disrupted. It's not coincidence that power outages happen and that we're in and out of town and that all these other like air conditionings out, whatever else you wanna add on it feels like has happened within the last seven weeks. It's not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence that if we wrestle with what does the invitation to prayer look like as well as the instruction to pray, that as we're diving into this as a church, that it's been disrupted, it's not a coincidence. But here's what I want you to think. Here's what I want us for our posture to be in light of this. It ought to inform rather than inhibit our prayerfulness as a church. It means it this disruptance points to the importance of the topic that we've been wrestling with. Here's what one pastor says. He says that the evil one is terrified by a praying church. Here's what Samuel Chadwick says, just the full quote. The one concern of the devil is to keep the saints from prayer. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. Prayer turns ordinary mortals into men of power. Look at this. He's speaking out of reference to what you see in the Bible. It brings fire. It brings rain. And look, it brings God. There's no power like that of prevailing prayer. Don't let the choppiness of this series deter you from praying. Storyline, let's be a praying church. Let's be a people that accept the invitation of God to come to him and to talk with him and then let's follow the instruction that Jesus gives us in how we pray. May it inform our prayers and inform our priorities in prayer that we pray as Jesus himself prayed. Let's be a praying church. If, his, if history and the Bible tell us anything, is that if we're a praying church, that God will be intimately present with us as his bride. And then secondly, he'll powerfully work through us to see his kingdom spread throughout our city. And I can think of no better reputation than those two things. Let's be a praying church.